HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about all things jiggly, as my guest likes to say. There was a time when aspic represented the finest, most elite, five-star dining, if you will, experience. And then gelatin and jello dishes, both savory and sweet, appeared in abundance in the following decades. But as historian and author, my guest, Ken Albala, clearly points out, jello is among the best examples of a food that goes in and out of fashion. Well, one of those eras, as it moved along and it became very popular, and if you're of a certain age, you wouldn't forget the glistening, jiggly red molds of tomato aspic that were on all important banquet tables and also graced the boxes, the cover of the boxes of Knox Gelatin. A real curiosity, but not necessarily mouthwatering. Jello molds were ubiquitous on holiday tables in the 50s and dinner gatherings. And today, except for maybe jello shots and the occasional school cafeteria appearances, it's become almost forgotten. But never fear, Ken Albala's new book, Hot Off the Presses, is all about this slippery, jiggly stuff. It's called The Great Gelatin Revival, Savory Aspects, Jiggly Shots, and Outrageous Desserts published by the University of Illinois Press. In Ken's inimitable style, the book is packed with history, references, and terrific detailed recipes for surprising treats. Surprising that I even found quite a few that I can't wait to try. Ken Albala is a professor of history at the University of the Pacific. He is also known as a successful author and editor of numerous books on food, including the most popular, Eating Right in the Renaissance, and three world cuisines, Italian, Mexican, and Chinese. But what I will tell you is more even more recently, 
which kind of is akin to this gelatin book in my feeling, is Noodle Soup, Recipes, Techniques, and Obsession. Many of you may know Ken from his Great Courses, the Great Courses series, the DVDs, and I think also on YouTube, right, Ken, called Food, a Cultural Culinary History. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. You know, when I said the noodle soup was kind of akin to this book, it because you sort of got into one of your obsessions, right, with the noodles. And I could see this coming as I followed your posts on on Facebook and, and uh, Instagram. And all of these weird things under jelly, under aspect in jelly. And indeed, it was all about aspic or gelatin or jello or jelly. What, how did this happen? Well, you're absolutely right that Facebook is what inspired the whole thing. Um, I spend an inordinate amount of time there, but a friend uh, asked me to look at a particular group called Show Me Your Aspects. And given that name, I said, no, I'm not looking at that. And I ended up looking at it anyway. And it turned out to be about Jello. And the people there turned out to be perfectly lovely and were interested in, I don't know, I guess I started making them at some point and then they loved them and, um, and eventually started calling me Jello Dad or Jiggle Daddy. <laughs> and, and so... I just sort of got sucked into the whole thing. And eventually I thought I better just get a book out of this. And and you're absolutely right that I obsess about something and take a deep, deep, deep dive. Um, our, a mutual friend of ours called me a, um, a serial monomaniac, which I think <laughs> is absolutely right. And uh, I just thought, well, there has to be a book on this because it was becoming so much fun. And in the course of, of making these, of course, I was looking at, at old recipes and things. And I started to notice this strange pattern in that there are very distinct periods that adore Jello, where you'll find it in the most fashionable cookbooks and in restaurant menus, and and people are excited about the the science even behind Jello. Very distinct, obviously the the you know mid century America, but also the Victorians were really really obsessed about Jello and and making lots of fancy colorful desserts. And then my eyes opened because I, you know, presumably know the Renaissance better than any other period. It's the one I study and teach about. Um, and there it was right in front of my eyes the whole time. All these authors I know really well were equally obsessed with Jello. Late Middle Ages, early Renaissance just surprised me. Um, and I thought there's got to be some logic to why this is happening. And of course, you know, the era when I grew up, Jello was really not in fashion at all. You'd never see it in a restaurant. And, you know, it was it was sort of infantilized. You know, it was on TV, Jello pudding, <laughs> things like that. No one no one took Jello seriously. Or if they did, it was sort of for kitsch value. You know, you'd mm -hmm. laugh at it, go, ha, ha, isn't this silly and, and ridiculous? And then I thought, well, is is there are there comparable periods when it goes out of fashion? And the most certainly are. So it's this long sort of oscillating arc of popularity that, you know, some, some foods go in and out of fashion or some are very fashionable for a while and then we forget about them or they're just not so interesting, but Jell-O's, the swing in Jell-O is so dramatic and so perverse <laughs> that, that one generation will think Jell-O is the best thing. And then the next generation will, will revile it completely, completely <laughs> find it detestable as in fact I did growing up. I never made Jell-O. I never, never thought twice about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it was so that's weird and surprising so well i was in the decade or two before that and it was i mean it was everywhere and but it's like you know those jello molds became something that you know i don't think i would ever eat them i mean they would be there and they were lovely to look at but you know and um, family gatherings and oh, there was always you know that one person who brought the jello mold <laughs> but it was it didn't like why would you put celery inside of jello isn't jello something i eat for dessert you know <laughs> they have all these strange things in it <laughs> you're absolutely right and it does sound awful and i think I, at some point i said i have to try these because people don't eat food that tastes bad mm-hmm. um you know and uh, the one that really shocked me was uh, perfection salad which which is sort of a joke and you know you know the book by Laura Shapiro about right, it right and and historically it's a very interesting you know phenomenon but i thought what does this actually taste like is it edible it actually is very edible um and i think that if you use you know the jello flavored packets um it it's not quite as nice because that's artificially flavored and colored and whatever if you use like real lime juice and interesting wine or or interesting ingredients perfection salad is is lovely it's it's salad in jello form which which sounds so abominable to us but it's it's actually kind of interesting right and and we could talk a little bit more about that too because that was a whole period also in in uh, sure. um but using the, the the box mixes and then that brings me to ask you the question okay we i've mentioned aspic and gelatin and jelly and or Jello, and then, of course, in the book you use Jello, the proper noun, gel hyphen O, and Jello. There, you differentiate what they are, but you know, of course, when you speak, Jello and Jello become the same. So, what are the differences in these between aspic, gelatin, jelly, Jello, and jelly? Gosh, there's very subtle differences. It's it really comes down to the fact that in the United States we use the word jelly to mean clear pectin-based fruit preserve, you know, that that you put on toast in the morning. Right. Whereas in England they call jelly everything that's gelled, including that. And I think that's confusing. Hmm. We yeah. use the word gelatin, which comes from Latin uh, gelu, just meaning ice. So weirdly enough, it means little ice. Um, I guess it was the closest thing they could think of that looks like that when it's solidified. Um, and the word gelatin really just means a um, an animal or fish-based collagen-derived uh, setting agent. There are many, many other gels. I mean, starch is a gel, carrageenan, and you know, seaweed makes gel. There's lots of different kinds. This is just the one that we we happen to use because we make stock and we, you know, have bones around and, and it's easy to process. Um, but in the United States, weirdly, the word jello has become generic for gelatin. We, we use gelatin as the raw ingredient, but once it becomes a dessert, whether it's made by the company or not, we just say generically jello, like we do Kleenex or Hoover, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and gelatin, of course, has a quite a history. I mean, going back probably further than we know. Sure. It's prehistoric. I mean, if anyone has boiled bones with, with cartilage in them, they know that they get uh, a solid thing if it gets cold. You know, any any stock will, will set. Mm-hmm. But the idea of taking that separately and using it and then making it as a, as a dessert onto itself, that's really medieval. 
I mean, that's that's something that starts to appear around the 1300s, which is when most medieval cookbooks start getting going. And then you find it in all of them. All of a sudden, everyone is excited about it. Um, and I think that there, you know, medieval cuisine in general is into lots of bright colors and flavors and aromas. And because Jello is such an adaptable medium, you know, to put anything in, they really, did, they really did. Have, it, it has one of its heydays uh, in that period. And I was kind of wondering, you know, is because it shows up in a couple of cookbooks doesn't mean people were actually eating it, right? I mean, it, it could be, you know, that someone at court is making it, and ordinary people are not. Um, but I found there a good amount of evidence that gelatin was well known among everyone. Um, just just the, the fact that it shows up in Dante, for example, yeah. in the in the Divine Com in the Inferno, there's a passage where two brothers get in a fight and end up killing each other, and their punishment in hell is to be is to be stuck in that position with knives drawn at each other's throats um, in Jello <laughs> to be stuck yeah. in there forever. Which I find like so so no one would get that metaphor unless they actually unless gelatin was commonly known. And um, Chaucer does the same thing. Chaucer said. Um, uh, Nas never pike wallowed in galantine, um, meaning no pike was ever stuck in jello the way I am stuck and in love with you. Uh, in this, uh, in um, I can't remember. Oh, it's a, it's a ballad. It's a Rosamond, a ballad to Rosamond. But but the fact that he wrote this means people understood what gelatin was <laughs> and right. made it. Now they may not have done the very fancy, colorful ones that have lots of you know that lots of layers, um, but they certainly had gelatin of some kind. No, but and even if you like, let's say you roast a chicken and then you go back to the pan and, you know, there's Absolutely. that, that, that gelatin that remains, you know, afterwards, um, very tasty if you've seasoned mm -hmm. your chicken well, <laughs> but you also know that it's also, it's very, it is very sticky. I mean, we're not talking about a, a sugary jello. I'm talking about just the gelatin. It's very right. sticky. Well, it's just it's broth or stock that has been solidified <laughs> with the collagen, but it's got whatever flavor you put on the chicken, really. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, totally delicious. And what I like about it is, you know, in we also don't realize that in much of the world, in Eastern Europe especially, they still have gelatin. I mean, they they never lost it. It never went in and out of fashion there. Head cheese, things like that mm -hmm. are form of, of gelatin. Some are firmer and sliceable, some are looser, but they're all basically just meat pit bits, you know, suspended in gelatin. Right. It's my uncle, uh, an uncle of mine who just recently passed away, was famous for his head cheese. He was Hungarian and uh, a, a blood relative. But, um, and, you know, we would all, as kids, we all would go, ooh, you know, head cheese. Well, I guess because he was using all the weird parts that were left over from, sure. from the pork. But, but it was really quite something to behold, to see this, these, as you say, the bits that were all suspended in the, in the gelatin. Yeah. It's delicious. It's absolutely lovely. And if you actually have a head, you know, it's got all the musculature and, and, you know, little, little connective tissue is what, what really melts down. So it's not, it's not some, it wasn't leftovers. If you had a head that was like the, the most expensive, lovely part of the animal you could use um and gelatin was it's you know was it's not really difficult to make i think i think the difficulty the the is sort of a myth um i think when they came out with the instant gelatin and powdered gelatin they they 
sort of implied that this was very elite food, that only wealthy people could afford to do this. And now we're democratizing it. Now we're, you know, making it available for the masses. And this is this is in ads, you know, even uh, the Jello uh, put out that the, not just implied, stated specifically. And I think what they're missing out on is gelatin is really easy to make. <laughs> it takes time. Um, and if you want it clarified, yeah, you have to know it technique wise. It's a little little difficult to you know use a, a raft of egg or something like that to clarify or muslins, whatever. But it's not hard. It's not like like a great, you know, difficult culinary skill, like making a souffle or something like that that can go wrong. It's it's really just boiling. You know, you just boil bits and you'll have a gelatin. Right. I was impressed because you, you <clears throat> do, excuse me, include a lot of, very, as I said, very detailed recipes, a lot of recipes from this medieval Renaissance period before the, you know, making of, of the gelatin and the rafting, you know, the clarifying of it. And very little has changed over the years, folks, I'll tell you. <laughs> Just, you know, you might strain it differently and not hang it in a bag necessarily. Some of us do. But, you know, it's really very little has changed in the way it's made. Sure. Now, having said that, the vast majority of recipes in the book are use a powdered gelatin just because it's easy. And I think you know, you can make jello in five minutes. <laughs> you know, there's nothing to it. It'll take a little while to set, but mixing the stuff together is just heating one element, mixing it with the other and throwing it in mold. Um, right. I'm actually doing a demo tonight, <laughs> which I'm going to try and do three, pull off three in an hour, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, how are you going to gel? How are you going to gel? You have, okay. You have a swap out for the finished product, right? Right. I mean, no, actually I'm going to try and I'm going to put them in small molds and let them do them as shots. Um, most of the book is actually, um, well, most Jello in the past included wine or some kind of spirits. And I found a really good cocktail in a gelatin form is magnificent. It is just such an interesting thing. That is what had me, that's what converted me, I must say. <laughs> so you have your, your recipes, your, the ones that you created with the, um, you know, with alcohol and, and some of the more modern uh, versions and and you see they're all small bite ones that you have here so they're easy to prepare and try for yourself but it was the cocktail molds that's that's what really got me i love that yeah um, they're, they're a lot of fun my my son the other day um asked me to make jello on the quick we were at, we were at his house and he said i have the ingredients to make a moscow mule and i said well why not let's let's make jello out of it and it was very simple i dropped a little little uh pickled pepper in each one, which I think complemented it beautifully with the ginger mm. beer and vodka. And, and I thought, like, you can really make a, a gelatin a shot out of anything. You know, any great cocktail is going to be more interesting and more fun in jello form. Mm -hmm. You know, you gave an example of a, um, uh, a capon gelatin. I don't know where it was here. I'm leafing through. But Probably from, Mrs. Bugo, I think. From Ferrara. Yeah, that's and, Mrs. Bugo. Yes. And I have to say that it was it was a revelation to me because the very best um, broth I ever had was in Ferrara at a restaurant of some repute and it was and had quite a history and was old and and they were famous for their capon broth tortelloni in capon broth. And I remember thinking, oh, if only this could be gelled and I could just take it and eat it at a later time. <laughs> and yep. it was wonderful. But what the instruction first was, was to um, boil the capon in a 
a good, sweet white wine. And I thought, oh, so that's what I've been missing all this time. You see, I was diluting it too much, and I was just using too much plain water. So next time, I'm going to get out yeah, the bottle. I have to say, <laughs> I, well, first of all, I can empathize with you on um, on Ferrara and and great food there, because there is. I mean, it's adjacent to, to Bologna, so it, that's no surprise, really. Right. But what, what did surprise me is when I first read that recipe, I thought, this can't be good, because I'm not really into sweet wine, except maybe port and things like that. But um, what turns out is that when you put alcohol into wine, you um, the flavor actually seeps into your taste buds much more intensely than if you're just drinking it, when it just sort of flows over your tongue. And I found that you you taste the alcohol much more strongly, especially if you're using a cocktail or something. So you have to be on the sweeter side and you have to be uh, add acid to kind of balance that sort of harshness of alcohol. And Mrs. Bugo knew this immediately. And in fact, he adds a lot of sugar. I mean, he adds, in, in fact, in the recipe, it's um, there's vinegar in there and there's sugar or honey. Yes. There's cinnamon, there's pepper, there's ginger, there's saffron. There's, I mean, that's a, a you know, riot of spices, which a of course of makes sugar. sense. A lot of sugar in a, in a very savory, you know, ultimate product. Which yeah, is, yeah. And it, and it really does work, surprisingly. You know, we tend to think sugar doesn't belong on chicken, but it's, right. but you know, I've, I've found that, that once you overcome those cultural prejudices, because they're really not universal. Um, you find sugar in, in savory dishes everywhere else in the world, you know? Um, so when it comes to European dishes, though, we tend to marginalize sugar to the end of a meal, you know, since the 17th century. And this is before that. So this is still the 16th century. Sugar is right center front sprinkled on everything with cinnamon. So we can imagine the sort of aesthetic of cinnamon toast, butter, sugar, and um, and cinnamon, that's Mrs. Bugo's favorite flavor combination. You know, in the 1540s, that is the the height of fashion. So it's not surprising that it go, went into this aspect, but it's clarified, which is neat. So the so the flavors really are there, but not but it doesn't look muddy like you just sprinkled cinnamon all over it. It's it's fairly clear, um, right. and uh, a beautiful, beautiful, elegant dish that you would not expect was you know 500 years ago which is kind of amazing it was it was really quite amazing and the numbers of spices and and then they probably didn't include them all but they you know they said you could include more but ah yes but use them whole because if you crushed them then it would get cloudy right so just like exactly right that was interesting and that was 500 years ago folks and gelatin as ken said never went away it just it stayed around and and just took different forms. But then, of course, you know, uh, industrial uh, technology got their hands on it and uh, became our instant jellos and instant gelatins. Uh, I guess we would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about that period, the, the industrialization, if you were like with Peter Cooper and Rose Knox. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it was, you know, coming out of a period when gelatin had a kind of loose um, association um, in the 18th century. I mean, people made them in the 18th century, but it was more something that you went to a jelly house to eat, which which was a, a, pro- a house of prostitution. Yeah, and so that was interesting. The, the reputation, it kind of fell entirely um, 
in the late 18th century. And I, and for reasons that I think make sense, it's the romantic period in, um, in art. And I think people wanted things that were natural and whole and unaffected and, you know, and not, uh, think of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, think, think of, of the whole idea of natural food, then gelatin sort of looks weird and are very artificial in a bad sense of the term. Um, so coming out of that, I think gelatin needed a boost of some kind, and it came in the form of, of architecture. It's Think of a carême and that whole period when huge pièces montées and extravagant desserts that, you know, and they're still serving in the French fashion, so everything comes out on the table at once. And this would be something you could really wow your guests with. And so the demand is there because to make one of those things, you really do need a lot of technical skill and for the clarity and for the, the physical structure of the, you know, a four foot gelatin t- towering is hard to do and without falling apart. Um, and I think that, that the impetus to create shortcuts was there in the industrial era. And Peter Cooper was the one who, who was, you know, this, this strange genius. I think he, he built railroads, did all sorts of interesting things like that. And there's a lot of things in New York City named after him, the Cooper Union, for one. Mm-hmm. And he um, had property that was adjacent to uh, ponds where they processed hides and cattle and um, and things where they would have a lot of extra bones and, and cartilage and stuff. And he had this bright idea to make it first into glue, which makes perfect sense. So that's most of what the factories were there. And then uh, to sell it in a form of gelatin that could be instant and powdered. Now, not to say that there wasn't already instant gelatin of some form. There was already um, heart's horn, which is, which is literally a deer's horn. Uh, there's also isinglass, which is the swim bladder of a sturgeon. But I think by this point, sturgeon had gotten so expensive and rare and elite that, you know, to use a lot of isinglass would cost a lot of money. So this is a much cheaper way to do it. And he invented this powdered flavored gelatin. And I think it was meant to be sold industrially. I think restaurants were supposed to buy it because it came, you know, the patent actually includes a recipe, strangely enough, that includes flavorings and things like that. But in his fashion, he had no interest in, in making it. And just sort of left it there. He had the patent. It got sold. <clears throat> I don't. I don't know the the sort of lineage of how it eventually got to the Jello company, but eventually, um, people like uh, like Rose Knox, end of the nineteenth century, and like the uh, you know um, um, the people who started the Jello company, which wasn't successful at first, um, sold this as a way of imitating what was going on in the you know, in fashionable restaurants. And of course, once that happens, it loses its popularity, right? I mean, if, if everyone can do it, then what's the big deal? It's nothing so exciting. <laughs> right, right. And so, so it goes out of restaurants in the early 20th century, or it lose, loses its its um, elite sort of charm when, you you know, you can make it at home very easily. Right. Well, you that's what I, one of the questions I had for you was you know, talk about the highs and lows. Why do you think... Um, it went out of fashion and then came back in fashion. And what you just mentioned, if, if everyone can do it, then I'm not doing anything so special, right? Uh, and then what, new innovations? Yeah, it's it's also, um, it's, well, who, who has access to it? But I think all styles and all um, foods eventually go in and out of fashion. You know, some, no, no, nothing can stay popular forever. Right. And, you know, it gets passed through social, different social strata. You know, what starts out as an elite 
food may be imitated by people just below to start with, and then becomes really, really popular, and the, the elite people get rid of it, and then they have to invent something new, which ironically sometimes means going back to simplicity and going back to really, you know, um, whole things and, and unnatural foods. And then that trickles down also, and it also trickles upward. You know, this is a two-way street. It doesn't just go one direction. But I think in the case of Jell-O, what it really reflects, and this is this is really the central thesis of the book, is that periods in history that trust in science and technology and in mass manufacture and and they kind of believe Jello is a great food because it's colorful and space age and you know and they think they have no reason to distrust it and then of course they find out that it's you know got artificial ingredients and it's you know coloring is bad for you and whatever and there are periods in history that that want natural food um we're coming out of one i think right now mm-hmm. and so the so the attitude toward jello i i have found is a re- very good index to see what people think about science and food in general whether they believe technology is a good thing and are happy to eat it or whether they think we're staying away from mass-produced food and we're going to do it yourself, you know, like, like we've had in recent times. Now, what that all suggests to me is that if we've had a good 20-year run of do-it-yourself, local, sustainable, organic, we're ripe for another period of, of scientific food. And I think that, that there are little hints of this coming out now, that this generation, my kids' generation, has absolutely no reason to distrust science the way my generation did. And um, they're happy to eat impossible burgers. You know, this is, this doesn't, doesn't bother them at all. And so I think, I think this, you know, we'll see in the next, I don't know, let's, let's say 20 years um, that cello is going to have a revival. That's not ironic. That's not, not, you know, for its kitsch value. I think people are going to take it very seriously as they did in the fifties, as they did in the, you know, 1890s. So, so, just because it's always happened before, <laughs> you know, that right. this right. seems like a natural progression. Well, we're going to take our listeners into the modern future of Jello, possibly in some of those recipes that you've created when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Ken Albala, and his new book, just hot off the press, is The Great Gelatin Revival, Savory Aspects, Jiggly Shots, and Outrageous Desserts. And Ken, you have um, very much brought us into uh, into what could very well be 
a revival of gelatins and jello and all things slippery and jiggly and slimy with some of these recipes that you've created. And I have to say, as I said earlier in the show, I was I became a convert when I read some of my favorite cocktails being made into uh, into a jello mold or you know, a, a jelly mold and and it was fabulous and you know what i really and and i'll let you talk about your favorites but what i really loved was the the greyhound in the half of a of a grapefruit hollowed out <laughs> with the jello in it and the pieces of grapefruit and what a marvelous idea you get to feel healthy and it's a great thing to look at and and yet you yes. get this great you great taste it's a great cocktail too. The only real difficulty is you need a really sharp knife to do a supreme of the grapefruit yeah. Yeah. and then setting it back in the jello in the same shape without the internal veins. That was tricky. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, so so the things what I found a lot of fun, and I I have a couple of molds, but I don't really find them that interesting because once you've put something in a mold and used it. You, you have to do the same thing again. And it's just not very interesting to me. So I started looking for strange objects to use as molds. Um, plastic, you know, everything comes in plastic nowadays, whether you want it to or not. But the bottom of, of a Coke bottle, of a, you know, plastic soda bottles has this very interesting nubbly um, sections to it. And um, just anything that I could find in plastic, I started using as molds and mm-hmm. little, little ramekins and, you know, silicone uh, heart shapes and th- things that were just a lot of fun to use. And then you don't have to commit yourself to making a huge jello that you're never going to end up finishing um, unless you're bringing it to a party. But um, what I found is that if I, I always keep a lot of good booze around just because I like drinking cocktails and that almost anything can go into jello form, as long as it's not really too strong alcohol wise, because I right. said it does taste hotter. Um, but then why not combine it with something that you would naturally pair it with any, anyway? Um, the, the one thing that I found is impossible, absolutely impossible to put in jello form is Fernet Branca. That, that becomes utterly horrible. Well, but what I'm going to try well, it's weird on its own. I mean, it's weird to start with. But what I'm going to try today um, is a Jägermeister because I've never done that. And <laughs> I'm going to see if it, if it works. I think it will because it's, it's got enough herbal sort of freshness. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to pair it with yet, but something that goes with fresh herbs and, you know, speaks of spring, I, I suppose. Um, but, but in any case, the point is that, that this was all really just playing in the kitchen, having fun, seeing what worked. And I would do, a, do one, at least one every day just for fun, sometimes more. And some of them were horrible. <laughs> some did not work at all. Some looked so scary that I had to post them anyway, even though I wouldn't really want to eat them every day. There were and some then, odd ones, I will admit. Yes. I, there were some odd and ones. Some looked terrible, but were fantastic. I mean, the, 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 the one that for some reason terrified people was a little baby octopus stuck in jello. Um, but it was delicious. You know, the octopus is chewy already and it's marinated and cooked and everything. And so the texture goes along with it in a really interesting way that I don't, I don't think was really odd at all. You know, um, there was one that I did this past week and I've, I've been doing a lot just because the book is launched right now. Um, but I did one that was, um, a pho basically, you know, that the, the, the mm-hmm. uh, Vietnamese soup, but I made the, the broth separate, chopped it up. And I thought, okay, I want something that has a texture that's kind of like it. 
And so I put in a steak tartare, like really good filet mignon in the middle of this, this pho. So you get a beef flavor, but it's not cold cooked meat, you know. And then I added some noodles and I added black noodles just because I thought that that would make a nice contrast in a white bowl. Well, all anyone paid attention to was, was the sick looking noodles that look like worms. Okay. And then they thought, oh my God, this has got to be terrible. And they thought it was awful. It was such a delicate, delightful combination of flavors and the texture of the noodles and the meat and the jello all was exactly the same. So it sort of aligned in such a surprisingly lovely way that I thought, yes, this may look terrifying to people, but but it was actually like magnificent. I would make that again in a, in a heartbeat. Well, that reminds me of your purple mung bean noodle with mango. It's beautiful, but it kind of is also a little disgusting looking. I mean, purple, <laughs> purple worm well, noodles. But, but I it, find that things that are on the threshold of repugnance, it <laughs> gets you right to that point where you think this is going to be really disgusting, but I'm going to eat it anyway. And then you find out it's lovely. Well, that's what makes really interesting food. I think if you're eating something, okay, you eat things for very different reasons. You know, sometimes it's for comfort. Sometimes you want to, you know, be extravagant and have oysters or whatever. But I find that the most interesting experiences are the ones where you are actually scared of what you're about to eat and you <laughs> are sure of the way it looks and you've maybe never tasted this combination before and that's what makes it sublime and i and i i kept this in mind while while writing these recipes the the, the whole idea of the sublime comes from edmund burke you know the you, you, well known as a political philosopher but also an aesthetician and this is someone who i got i took a course in aesthetics my sophomore year in college. <laughs> this is a long, long time ago, and it's he, he stuck in my mind. And the um, think of the the paintings of uh, Turner. You know those bright lights and greasy water and and sinking ships and people being eaten by sharks. You know things that were just so terrifying and yet so compellingly beautiful anyway, and weird and surprising. And I said, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to shoot for in this book, is, is whatever is sublime and terrible <laughs> has, has to be on a different level of aesthetic experience. Well, you've certainly captured a lot of that in this book, I have to say. <laughs> and, and, you, and you do wrap it up with your prognostication, which you gave us a good hint at that, that, you've, that the reasons why you feel there is going to be a revival, that it's time for jello and gelatin to come back again. Anything you want to add to that? Sure. I think it is going to come back in restaurants and there's already little signs of that. There was a, an article in food and wine actually a few months ago. Um, and a hand, I oddly enough was featured in some news articles even before the book came out, which, which was bizarre. Um, but I think people are beginning to take it more seriously. And I think when people start making it at home, and experimenting with it and feel more comfortable with the whole idea of a high-end cocktail jello with great ingredients. I think restaurants are going to take it seriously. They're going to think, okay, how do what what new thing can we do that's not going to break the bank as it did Rene Redzepi this past week, right? Um, and that will be not necessarily you know tech forward, not so difficult that you'd need a Although al alginates are, are actually a kind of jello, right? I mean, that's the al, al comes from algae. It's a mm -hmm. it's like a, like agar. Agar. Um, right. But I think that things that will not require a lot of 
really expensive equipment and technique, but you can do cheaply at home and create something that's entirely new. I think that's really what's going to appeal to people, partly because, you know, for the past 20 years or so, we've been striving for authenticity, um, meaning that we want food that is made by the people who created it in the right context in the jungles of Borneo, you know, and, and I understand that. And, and, you know, we want things also that are local and sustainable and whatever. And I think we're getting tired of this. <laughs> There's very little new to do now. Um, and yes, there are always new cuisines to discover, but we're finding that that's kind of exploiting those people, you, you know, and, you know, you go there and you say, look what I found. I mean, you know, Savour was the, the whole magazine was about that, about right. a whole world of authentic flavor was their motto or something like that. And that we're finding there's something unsettling about that, about the exoticism of the other, of exploiting peoples who, you know, are making money off of them ultimately that I think when you create something that no one has ever eaten before, you're safe <laughs> on your own ground where you, no one can say you're not doing this correctly. Um, and you can play with the ingredients. No one's going to complain that you bought paid money to buy an ingredient and are combining it in ways that are intentionally new. And, and, you know, it's been a long time since, <clears throat> since fusion was around. It's yeah. been a long time since um, the whole molecular gastronomy thing was hot. It's been teetering, you know, for a long time. It got reinvented and reconfigured. But, you know, Farhan Adria closes door a long time ago. So I think we're, we're ready for, a, some, for some novelty. And, hmm. and gelatin is just one of those things that's going to be entirely new to, to this generation. I think you're right. You know, I've seen a lot of these resin models that look like two foot tall jello molds lately. Oh, seems God. To be this fashionable thing and um, as decoration. But they're, and they look like like real jello molds or gelatin. And oh, the, the one that, that got a lot of popularity was a clock. Um, that had little bits in it that looked like they were set in resin, uh, but they called it the vomit clock. One I saw recently had goldfish floating in it, and and a couple other things, and it was a you know a three tiered oh. kind of mold. And yeah, you know, this, obviously <laughs> they're taking their cues from you know from the past and gelatin molds. Right. So, you know, so I think but here's the novelty that I have never heard of, and someone mentioned it to me recently, and I said this can't work, but I'm going to try it today. Is frozen jello. Just take a take a jello, and I have some that already made in the fridge, and I'm just going to freeze slices of it and see what it's like. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm incredulous, but but we'll see. I mean, does it really freeze? Like, I, I don't know. Does it recrystallize? You're not supposed to freeze jello because it squeezes the moisture out. You know, the crystals that form, um, the water comes out of. I think it's called cinderesis, but the, the the liquid gets squeezed out of the collagen and freezes. But maybe that's the appeal. Maybe it's going to be crunchy and interesting. I don't know. We'll yeah. find out. Well, I look forward to, hopefully you will post it somewhere in social media. So I'll see it or else send it to me and we'll know. Right? And for those of you at home, the next time you maybe go to a, a, a restaurant and get a slice of pate or something, and don't push aside that little slice of aspic on the side. Make sure you eat it and then you'll know what we're talking about. It's very tasty. <laughs> It is the best yeah. yeah. Well, Ken, thank you so much for writing this book and 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 converting me to to fall in love once again with Jello and gelatins and and uh, and I wish you 
all the luck with this. I don't think you're it is always anything. a delight to be on your show. <laughs> and, and to keep you. Yeah, that's true. Thank you. Well, be well, and thank you all for listening to another Taste of the Past. And if you like this recording and all the others that you hear on Heritage Radio Network, consider becoming a member or just donating to heritageradionetwork.org and keep us on the air or on the internet, whatever. Okay, thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.